Welcome to the Creating Wealth Show with Jason Hartman. You're about to learn a new slant on investing, some exciting techniques, and fresh new approaches to the world's most historically proven asset class that will enable you to create more wealth and freedom than you ever thought possible. Jason is a genuine, self-made multimillionaire who's actually been there and done it. He's a successful investor, lender, developer, and entrepreneur who's owned properties in 11 states, had hundreds of of tenants and been involved in thousands of real estate transactions. This program will help you follow in Jason's footsteps on the road to your financial independence day. You really can do it. And now, here's your host, Jason Hartman, with the complete solution for real estate investors. Welcome to episode 1526-1526. Today, we will do the second half from yesterday talking about technocracy, but something very important, and that is mortgage interest rates. You know, I talked to you recently about how the rent-to-value ratio has been temporarily repealed, and this really illustrates it because all of those fools, all of those people misleading us out there in the media talking about the impending doom and the housing crash. And I get it. The economy is not in good shape in many parts of it. But again, very lumpy, very uneven. Well, let's just look at housing. The one part of the economy outside of food and I guess clothing, but I'm sure everybody's got more than enough clothing. Clothing has gotten so cheap, it's absolutely crazy. Housing that has universal need, remember, people need food, clothing, and shelter. Well, let's compare some mortgage rates for a moment. Why don't we do that? Why don't we do that? Because this will be very enlightening before we get to our guest today. So United Wholesale Mortgage announced today that It was rolling out a loan program that offers borrowers mortgage rates as low as 1.99%. That's 1.99%. Now, on July 31st, the same company announced that they would do 1.875% on a 15-year mortgage. So the 1.99 is on a 30-year mortgage. This will be in very limited supply. I'm sure this money will be gobbled up like there's no tomorrow. Remember, money is just like any popular product. When it's super cheap and it's a bargain, it's going to be a bit of a hassle to get it. You're going to have to wait in line. You're going to have to put up with bad service. That's the way it goes. Now, mind you, these are owner-occupied mortgage rates. These are not investor interest rates. Investors will be dinged a little bit and have to pay a little more, but again, It's a sign that the overall mortgage market, that mortgage money, even if it is non-owner occupied, in other words, investor financing, it's still incredibly cheap because these two track each other. Um, Unfortunately, there's not really any index, at least not that I'm aware of, that shows investor mortgage rates, non-owner occupied one to four unit considered residential mortgage rates over any long period of time. So you just have to assume that, you know, as an investor, whatever the owner-occupied mortgage rate is, you're going to pay a little more. 
How's that for an exact science? A little more, a little more. You pay a little more. <laughs> okay, pay a little more. So here is the comparison I want you to make. And by the way, this mortgage is available to people, get this. Maybe we are revisiting the crazy loans are too liberal times that we had back in the early 2000s. Because you only, I thought the requirements for this ultra cheap money would be so difficult that only a few small number of very premium borrowers would be eligible. But that's not the case. Because get this, you only have to have a FICO score of at least, the article says, at least 640. <laughs> that's ridiculous. 640 isn't even a very good FICO score at all. Remember, the ideal FICO score is 720. And of course, it goes higher. You could have a 740 plus FICO score. You could be into the 800s. But just remember what I've taught you over the years. If your FICO score is too high, it's just like having a bunch of money stuck under your mattress. It means that you're not using your credit. So when people come to me and brag about, oh, their FICO score is 800, I say, oh, you dummy. You need to be using more of your credit. Apparently, you like sticking your FICO score under the mattress where it doesn't do anything for you, where it doesn't earn you any return on your investment. No, you don't want your FICO score to be too high. Now, in reality, though, what happens when you start buying a bunch of properties, your credit does take a little bit of a hit and it goes down at first. But then later, after you've made those mortgage payments consistently, six months, 12 months, a few years, you know, I don't have the exact information here. I'm not, I mean, this stuff is super complex, okay? There, there are people that spend their whole careers engaged in optimizing FICO scores. And guess what? I'm not one of them. But just in principle, that's the way it works. So your credit score really will go nice and high. I don't know if it'll be higher than if you never used your credit, but it'll go up for sure. I, it'll take an initial hit. And then after repayment uh, on time for a period of time, you're going to see that FICO score rise very nicely, very nicely. So get this. Here's the comparison. And this is really important, folks. Really important. Listen up. Are you listening? This is really important. You always see these people in the media you always hear these idiots talk about the housing market. And they say, well, you know, prices now are as high as or higher than or whatever they're going to say or almost as high as because, of course, it depends what markets they're talking about, this, that, and the other thing. You, you know, peel the onion a thousand different ways. Fine. But in principle, if you just look at the nationwide median price home, right, on a very simplistic view of things. They're going to say, well, housing prices now are really high. And when they were really high before, we went into a bubble and the market crash. Okay, fine and dandy. Good for you. You can look at a price chart, but you never look at what the cost of the house is. You only look at the price of the house. So this would be similar to if, for example, if in the past, just that it didn't happen this way, but let's just make a comparison here. Say, for example, in the old days when housing crashed before, you could only get a 10-year mortgage, okay? 
just humor me for a moment as, as an example, that the mortgage was amortized, meaning you pay principal and interest, and you amort the loan, you kill it when you make the last payment. Latin word amort means to kill, okay? To kill the mortgage, you amortize it away, you kill it slowly over 10 years instead of 30 years, right? So say, for example, back then you could only get a 10-year loan. And now you can get a 30-year loan. Well, what does that do? It makes your cost every month much lower. So let's view that as a concept for a moment and put that on the shelf now that we've got it in our head. Okay, in 2006, the mortgage rate averaged 6.41% in 2006. So if you financed a $100,000 mortgage, now remember, I'm talking here not about the price of the property, I'm talking about the amount of the loan, the mortgage amount. In 2006, you paid 6.41% and you got a $100,000 mortgage. Your payment, amortizing it over 30 years, everything else, I'm going to keep it totally consistent, would have been $626.16 per month, okay? I'm going to leave the cents out because... A lot of people have no sense. <laughs> oh, I'm so funny. These people in the media have no sense. They, they make these completely inaccurate, misleading comparisons that mislead you to miss opportunities or mislead you to do things you shouldn't do or avoid doing things that you should be doing, right? It's totally misleading. Don't be misled. Okay. I'm done with that. I got my trusty HP-12C calculator in front of me. You can go and, you know, cheat. Just type in amortization calculator and, and search it on the web as you bing it or duck, duck, go it because you wouldn't dare Google it. So type in amortization calculator and you do the math yourself because when you do it yourself and you really see it, you know, you own it. You believe it. But here's me on my good old-fashioned HP-12C calculator. For those of you who don't know what that is, us people, us old timers in the old days, this was the standard calculator that everybody used. And you can still buy them today because so many people, the dying breed, like myself, we will eventually all die off. Hopefully it won't be soon. <laughs> but we still like this good old calculator. You know, you just get used to something and you keep using it. It's a great calculator. It's a truly incredible thing. In fact, the ads in the magazine when there used to be these things called magazines, there would be an ad you'd see in like the Realtor magazine. And it would have a picture of the HP-12C calculator that was about $110. Now, adjusted for inflation today, that's about, I don't know, 300 and something dollars probably. I bought my first HP-12C when I was 18 years old. And um, I paid like $110, $116 or something like that. It's the calculator, the ad would say, the calculator that has no equal because it's sort of backwards. There's no equal sign on it. Every other calculator has an equal sign except this one. No equal. Anyway, so I type in $100,000 and then I go PV for present value because that's the present value of the mortgage, not the future value. And then I type in 6.41 blue key I, meaning interest rate. And then I type in 3-0, blue key N, meaning number of payments, 30 years, and I get $626. I'm going to drop the cents, okay? Now, I do the same thing 
at today's interest rate, at this ridiculously low, absurd, negative interest rate, 1.99%, and the same $100,000 mortgage amount is $369 per month. So you would pay in 2006 at what many consider to be the peak of the market, you would pay $626 per month. You can borrow the same amount of money today for $369. So you, you save almost $300. Now, it's fair to look at this a different way. Let's look at it another way. So the question is, how much has our buying power increased? In other words, apples to apples comparison. How much more could we spend on a house today to have the exact same payment? But wait a second. Even if we make that calculation, which we're about to, it won't give us the complete picture, will it? Why not? You regular listeners that have been following my work for the past 16, 17 years, you know the answer to that question, don't you? The answer to the question is that I haven't adjusted for inflation. There's no inflation adjustment here. These are just nominal dollars. Nominal, of course, means in name only. See, in 2006, $626 was called the same thing it's called today. So in name only, that's all I'm comparing today. I didn't adjust this for inflation. And you know what? If I have a few minutes, it might take more than a few minutes to do it right, I will do that math for you and I'll bring it to you tomorrow. How's that sound? Coco, just remember, I got to adjust these numbers for inflation. But Coco, guess what? My dog is looking at me so weird right now. She thinks I'm loony. That's the dog, Coco. All right. I'm not just going to adjust them for you should see this right now, folks. If only we were on video and you could see the dog looking at me right now. <laughs> it's pretty funny. Coco, we're not only going to adjust for inflation with the official statistics. We're going to go and log into my private membership of shadowstats.com and we're going to adjust for the formerly official inflation numbers. Folks, I have something to tell you right now. The dog is walking upstairs. She's walking away. She, my dog, thinks I'm a Looney Tune. Okay, maybe I am. But I want to know what our buying power is, everything else being equal. So guess what? Instead of looking at a $100,000 mortgage, I went ahead and I just guessed roughly I said, what if I got a mortgage for $70,000 more? Now, remember, this is not the property price. It's the loan amount. So say I decided to spend $70,000 more for a property today than in 2006. How would that look? Well, all things being equal, 2006, nothing here is adjusted for inflation. Okay? But that... Payment at 6.41% interest, which was the rate in 2006, would be $1,064. But today, at 1.99%, if you can get one of these fantastic loans, I could spend $70,000 more. In other words, 70% more. 
70% more. Okay, the $100,000 mortgage is now $170,000. And my payment would be pretty much the same. To be specific, I would pay for $70,000 in additional price or mortgage loan amount. I would pay $627.50 versus getting $70,000 less 14 years ago would be $626.16. So yeah, it's a buck 30, give or take, right? Difference, a dollar and 30 cents a month difference. So I get an additional $70,000 or 70%. Look, folks, you can just add a zero if you want. If you live in the Socialist Republic of uh, Los Angeles or San Francisco, just make it a million dollar mortgage and a $1.7 million mortgage. And it's the same thing. You just add a zero. It's the same proportion, okay? I can get $70,000 additional buying power today for the same nominal dollar price. But wait, there's more. It gets better. Because when we adjust for inflation, we're going to do some more math. Even though the dog walked away and she didn't want to hear me talking about this, I tell you, I'm going to do a little more analysis for you and get back to you on this. So stay tuned. Stay tuned for more. Because this is really, really exciting, folks. And this is how to look at the reality of the situation. The reality of the situation is here for you. So very interesting. Again, 70000 bucks extra. Thank you, Jerome Powell, for that extra $70,000. See, Jerome Powell didn't have to send you $70,000. All he had to do is lower the interest rate, and you got effectively $70,000. Now, you want to know why wealth inequality is growing? Because guess what? Some people will never get that bailout. Most of you listening will get that bailout. You know, we'll take advantage of it. But guess what? The poor, they're not buying a house. They're not getting a mortgage. They're not getting an additional $70,000. You see how this is unfair? It is. But what can we do about it? I don't know. Probably nothing. But the best way to help the poor, as the saying goes, is not to be one of them. Okay? So so go make yourself some money with this additional 70000 bucks Jerome Powell, Uncle Jerome just gave you, and uh, take advantage of it. And in fact, take advantage of it 10 times, and he just gave you $700,000. Take advantage of it 20 times, and he gave you $1.4 million. Take advantage of it. I think you can do the math. I don't need to multiply for you, do I? Okay. <laughs> okay, one more time. Take advantage of it three times, and he gave you $2.1 million. Uncle Jerome Powell, your rich uncle. What a guy. What a guy. And if we adjust for inflation, it's even better than that. So more to come on that one. Okay, let's get to our guest and let's go to part two and talk about the technocracy. If you need help taking advantage of this, jasonhartman.com or 1-800-HARTMAN. Our investment counselors are ready to help you take advantage of this free money from Uncle Jerome Powell. Here's our guest. Yeah. So if you control the resources, it doesn't matter what the monetary system is. You you have the wealth. You have the 
the control over, you know, the humanity within your reach because you can decide what happens with those resources. And so this, in my opinion, this has been a, a major theme, at least since the early 1970s, that, that sustainable development could be used as a platform by the global elite to grab resources on an epic scale around the planet. And for the resources that they could not grab directly, the United Nations has practiced for a long time now a policy of taking resources offline and simply declaring them to be, you know, vacant of human activity. Just stay away from it, like the like the um, you know the heritage zones and stuff. The ma- you know massive plots of land that basically just been taken out of human protection. Well, I'll well, tell that- you something. So when you say resources, you're pretty much talking about land, right? Absolutely. Okay. Okay. So the, uh, resources are land. Well, things that come from, uh, by extension, things that come from the land. Okay, got it. Coal, so, the oil, timber, the food, et cetera. Sure. Your, years um, ago, when I had the brilliant Thomas Sowell on my show, I uh, in that during that interview with him, I coined a new term, and I called it environmental racism. And yeah. basically, when I lived in Orange County, California, Irvine, Newport Beach, some very nice areas, I, I would notice they dedicate all this land as o- permanent open space. And then the people that went and bought homes there, you know, all my nice white neighbors, and I'm white too. So, you know, <laughs> I, I mean, it's just kind of, I'm, I'm noticing it and talking about it at least. But they would basically start circulating all sorts of petitions and getting activists about they got to dedicate more open space and more for the environment. And really, that was just to keep their property prices up or to drive them up and to keep people out, to keep others out, to make it inaccessible to other people of lower incomes. And so uh, that's what's going on around the world. And that's Agenda 21 is, is like that. But the interesting thing about it is that if anybody considers COVID-19 to be Uh, You know, some people are way out there and they think it's a total conspiracy. I don't think that. But it is an opportunity. If you're in power and you want more power, there are certainly a lot of power grabs going on. But this is doing the opposite of that. This is making people just uh, spit in the face of Agenda 21 ideas, where people are going to the country and living in rural areas or car-based suburban areas. I mean, nobody's going to be interested in high-rise living and mass transit if you've got a, a deadly virus and a bunch of race riots going on in your city, right? Who wants to live in a city anymore? I mean, you know, that, that seems like it's a, an opposite current, right? It, it does. And, and I have to say, the, the, the flood of people leaving right now, just panicked almost, leaving cities, completely flies in the face of the global elite's predictions that there's going to be 75% or 80% of all the people in the world living in cities someday. And that's why we need to make smart cities and, you know, have all the monitoring stuff and, and everything connected with the Internet of Things to, you know, control everybody. They've had all these great lofty plans. And they're running a little bit uh, off the rails right now, I have to say. And, you know, what they're thinking at this point is anybody's guess. But uh, the rural communities, I have to throw this in, the rural communities, by definition, have already been included into the major metro areas as far as regulatory, you know, activity is concerned. 
And this is something that most rural communities do not recognize at this point. Agenda 21 and sustainable development, the 2030 agenda, those doctrines as rules are being set in place within a major city, they also were including in their master plan all of the surrounding rural communities as well. And so the regulations from the city extend out into the rural areas. I've studied this in California quite a bit. And you look at uh, one bay, one plan in the, for the Bay Area, and you'll see that it extends up into the foothills of Northern California, which is far, far away from the cities, all the way through all the agricultural land. And those people, the irony of it is those people in the foothills and all these outlying areas have no voting power and they probably don't have any money to go and lobby. So they'll just get overrun by the city slickers in terms of the regulation. Right. Exactly. And that's exactly what happened. I I grew up in Northern California, so I'm sensitive to it. and, And I know ranchers and farmers up there. And that's exactly the case. They, you know, they say, well, what can we do? You know, I mean, uh, you know, we don't like it and and we complain about it, but we don't have the voting power. We don't have the voting block. We don't have the influence or the or, or the megaphone or microphone to speak out against it. And so we're just getting sucked into it like a vortex and we have no choice. But what people are going to find as they flee the cities to live in the suburbs or out in the rural areas, uh, smaller cities, for instance, that maybe only have five or 10,000 people right now, they will find when they get there that many of the things that they fled uh, will follow them. That's all. I'm, that, that's the only thing I would say. Maybe not immediately, but those same types of manipulative regulations will follow them. And and I'm afraid uh, already that uh, some of these radical groups like Antifa and, and BLM have already said, well, they're coming to the suburbs, they're coming to the rural communities. And I don't know what that means yet. But oh, I well, like they've, they've been in Coeur d'Alene, Idaho, and they are doing that. But it's hard for them. And so we'll see that. But all of these manipulative regulations and stuff, it's, it's hard for them to be meaningful if you live in the suburbs or in rural areas. You know, so they might have regulations and restrictions, but it's going to be hard for them to enforce them or make it meaningful. I think the thing that the powers that be can do if they want to gain more power and really hurt people is they really need to control, and they already do control it in terms of the content of it, but they need to control like the speed of the internet and the access to information. And if they if they can make it so that it's hard to have good internet in rural areas, then that will push people back into the crowded cities where Agenda 21 wants them. That Listen, all the, the Green New Deal doesn't work without mass transit, okay? You know, it doesn't work in suburbia very well. It works in cities better. You know, it works in high rises. It works in mass transit areas. Um, it doesn't work in car-based culture. So right. that's the opposite of what they want, right? Well, it is. And, and you know, it's interesting, uh, interesting up in the, in the uh, Portland area, uh, a few months ago, I don't know, maybe three months ago or so, there was a hundred miles of street uh, that were shut down for the sake of COVID. And uh, I thought to myself at the time, I said, well, that fits right in with what they've always wanted to do is get all the cars off the streets and, uh, you know, force people into mass transit and riding their bicycles and stuff like that. And I don't know if they ever lifted that ban on those particular streets, but it was kind of a humorous way to, um, well, it wasn't funny to them people living there, I guess, but 
it was kind of funny to me that they were trying to fight COVID by shutting down the streets. And then they showed pictures of people riding their bicycles on these, on these empty streets. And, you know, they're riding along. And of course they, you know, they're riding in pairs and groups and stuff like that, which is just seems to be antithetic to uh, think policies that would, that would fight the, the disease in the first place. <laughs> yeah. It, it's a crazy time. What does the trilateral commission have to do with all of this? And what is the trilateral commission? You know, there's this thing about presidents that have been members of the trilateral, have been trilateralist, I guess yeah. I should say, or not. And like Reagan wasn't, and he had an assassination attempt and it seems I, to immunize you from assassination attempts or something. Is that true? What, what is that all about? Well, Trilateral Commission was founded by David Rockefeller and Zbigniew Brzezinski, uh, kind of the beauty and the beast sort of a combination back in 1973. And they drew members from uh, from Europe, Japan and North America, very elite uh, members of the global economic community, the business community, the political community, legal community, the press community. And their goal back then was to create a new international economic order. And we debated, uh, Tony Sutton and I debated members of the Trilateral Commission back in those days before they caught on to, you know, our critical stance on it. And they said consistently that they were, that they were after uh, creating a new economic system in the world, that they were not interested in politics. And even though they had politicians and their members, uh, membership. But what I discovered is that in spite of all the members of the Trilateral Commission who got into the political system, especially with Jimmy Carter, because Carter was a member, Mondale, his vice president, was a member, and most all of his cabinet were members of the Trilateral Commission, they weren't after capturing the, or, you know, just running the political system. What they were after was getting their hands on the economic machinery that re that was represented by that political system. They wanted to get into the to a control situation over the global economic system in order to transform it. So, for instance, over succeeding years, eight out of 10 of the World Bank presidents uh, that the president appointed were members of the Trilateral Commission. You had nine out of 12 member uh, people who were appointed to the U.S. Trade Representative. Nine out of 12 were members of the Trilateral Commission. The giant trade treaties like, like NAFTA and, and uh, CAFTA were written by members of the Trilateral Commission. So this was about economics from day one. It wasn't about a political coup like a lot of people thought. And they have come and gone. Members of the commission have come and gone from government over the years. And, but I, I believe personally their goal is still the same. It's to transform the economic system and it's you, you, you keep sure. saying transform, but what does that mean? I mean, transform it to resource-based, and yeah. and it sounds like pretty much consistently globalism. Would you yes. would you agree with that? Right, absolutely. Globalism, which means the nations they don't have the power. It's kind of like the states' rights debate between the states and the federal government, who has the power, right? Same idea on an international scale. But you know the thing COVID will do for the power-hungry uh, folks that we're discussing? It will push us toward a digital cryptocurrency. And, and I don't mean Bitcoin. I mean a government-backed, central bank-backed cryptocurrency. China yeah. is doing it, and they have every excuse. I've seen several articles about dirty money 
meaning uh, that, you know, touching coins and dollar and bills, that's dangerous, that can transmit the disease, they say. And, uh, and you know, they may well be right. And so it's, it's an opportunity to say, hey, look, you know, we've got to make this digital. And then we will lose our spending privacy completely. And another Another thing, the last bastion maybe of privacy that's left is, you know, the ability to use cash and buy something without everybody knowing what we did, it will be lost. So that's, I guess if you're on a check a chessboard, I would call that check. And yes. then if there is a global digital fiat money, if it's one currency, a world currency, that's checkmate. It's yes. game over for the citizens of the world right there, because there will be zero privacy and they could do what China is doing with this social scoring and literally just take your money away with a click of a mouse. Um, yes. And you, you could become destitute and starve and, you know, your resources could be just completely cut off because uh, you said something bad about the Internet or wrote something bad on social media, you know, or, I mean, not about the Internet, about the government. <laughs> you know? That's yeah. right. This is yeah, this is one of the great risks, I believe, that we face right now. And I've one of my favorite topics over the years has been the Bank for International Settlements. And mm -hmm. I studied them extensively in years past and. Nothing much has changed there, but, you know, they are the, the central bank to central banks around the world system, mm -hmm. and they're very powerful. They have tons of influence on what happens in the world economically. And just recently, it's been uh, revealed that the BIS is creating a series of innovation hubs, they call them, that they're putting around in various countries, including the United States and Canada and, and countries in Europe, to, as they say, plot the, the future of money. And these innovation hubs are lathered with money from the BIS. And their goal is to hire the brightest and the best, you know, computer programmers and monetary, whatever, uh, cryptocurrency type people that are, you know, big on blockchain, that sort of thing, to come up with a digital payment system using AI and cybersecurity and all that kind of stuff that would be suitable for the entire planet. Now, individual central banks have been working on stuff for a long, for some time, the our Fed has the the Fed coin idea. The bank for um, the Bank of England has uh, their own little SWAT team of uh, researchers who are working on digital currencies and so on down the line. China, as you said, has been working on it. But now the BIS, the elephant in the living room, has weighed in that they're putting they're putting a network of so-called innovation hubs together around the world to create an integrated global monetary digital system and that's on the books now we can look at that we can study it they've got papers out on it and it's like you know i look at it and go oh boy here we go <laughs> here you know they're weighing in on it and you can just see where this is going if they control where people can build how they can build uh you know a home for themselves if they control every body of water a little pond on your property if they control your money they control the energy you have access to, whether you're allowed to catch rainwater or not, it consolidate all the tech companies so that they can control speech, which is what they're doing as a proxy for the government, the big tech companies. That's exactly what they're doing. That, you know, the government can't control your speech in, in the U.S., right? But Twitter and Google sure can, and so can Facebook. And so the, these big tech companies just become a proxy for government. You don't have First Amendment rights against Twitter. 
Okay. No. Yeah, you only have that against the government. So these are pretty crazy times. Last thing, I mean, we've got to wrap it up, but this has been an interesting talk, uh, Patrick. Where's the economy going? And I mean, I, I know what you're going to say, <laughs> you know, but it's a loaded question. But, you know, dice it up for us a little bit. It's always more complicated than just a question like that. It really is. And the simple term would be, I think by the beginning of next year, uh, there will be every attempt to kind of prop things up between now and the election. But starting in November, December, uh, January, sometime within a three or four month period after that, I think we're, I think the, the Great Depression, too, will be recognized around the world. And um, it will force uh, governments to probably react again with new stimulus and how we're going to get out of this and yeah, you know, I mean, who but, knows? But what, I mean, no government wants that. I mean, the all of the powers that be say that the the reason we had the Great Depression was because we didn't do enough, right? So we, I think we can all pretty much bank on that the Fed and the government and other central banks and other governments around the world are going to stimulate as much as they need to. They, there is no tether whatsoever on the amount of money they can pump into a system. So if they do that, I mean, does that mean inflation? You know, when you say, well, there's going to be a depression, is that an inflationary depression? Is it a deflationary depression? Is it neither? These are um, nuanced issues for sure. Well, absolutely they are. And it does make it does make a difference. I personally I believe that we'll be headed into a deflationary depression. But why would they let that happen? Because well, they don't they don't want deflation. It makes their debt burden bigger. And you know, it, look at all uh, the debt the US has. Why would they allow that? They'll just it, it, print um, so the, much they'll just create inflation, right? Yes, that's right. But the, the cycles of inflation and deflation often have a life of their own. Once they're started, they often have a life of their own. And I think that's what's going to happen here. But here's my here's my prediction as far as technocracy is concerned. What people will beg for in the end is answers and solutions to make society work again. And I can almost I just see this in my mind today that leaders and people you know, on the street, uh, Main Street, as they call it, will be begging for somebody to come along and provide solutions to make society work again. Just make it work and fix it. It's broken. Fix the society. Get the crime off the streets. Get the, you know, kind of get the economy going again. That will be the day that these technocrats rise up again, make themselves visible and say, we have solutions if you just but ask us for them. And we will come in and help you fix the system. Here's, here's the case in point to back that up. Back in 1933, when FDR was just coming into the presidency, he'd been elected and he was yet to be seated in January. And um, the technocrats of that day actually published a book. And this was a big movement back then, by the way. There was hundreds of thousands of people who were card-carrying, dues-paying members of the technocracy incorporated movement across North America. They actually wrote a book that begged FDR to, to declare himself dictator once he got into office to dismiss all of the political system, Congress, courts, everything, and simply allow those engineers and scientists to set up a structure where everything could be managed by them. You didn't need a political system, they said. We can do it. We can make it. everybody's needs will be met and everybody will be 
you know, they'll have what they need and they won't have to work so hard and, you know, everything's going to be good. Well, this was a Pollyannaish dream, but the mean-spirited attitude came out with this demand of FDR to declare himself dictator. Say, holy mackerel, are you really <laughs> And so I got this book. It's a rare book. I got a copy of it. I read it and about dropped my teeth. Well, we're going to be back in a situation similar to this at some point where people are simply not going to care about the political system in charge, whether it's socialism, communism, or anything. They're just going to say, look, can anybody come along and make the system work again? Well, that's where we already have some degree of that now, certainly. And we've had it for you know a long time. I mean, they just create a crisis and then come in and, and rescue the people from the crisis that was created by government in the first place. So that's, uh, that's you know, create a crisis, then then solve it. And um, in, in they always gain more control as they do every time they do that it's another layer of additional control and additional yep. wealth transfer and that's exactly what you have happen isn't it exactly yeah you know wow. I, I i often refer to uh one of the star the some of the star trek series that that feature that that race called the borg mm -hmm. and a lot of people under you know know what the borg was just science fiction of course but they had this uh, this famous phrase, "We will assimilate," and you know, into the hive mind, we will assimilate. Yeah, right. Log and they grab people, and all of a sudden, there's technology all over them, and they assimilated them into the hive mind. You know, this is the essence of transformation today, yep. in, in my opinion. To look around the world, it's that this thing just keeps marching on, and basically, they're saying, "When we touch you, we will assimilate you." <laughs> And it's, this is exactly what's happened. Yeah, that's the thing. That's the thing. Well, okay, wrap it up with what can anybody do about any of this stuff? It's there's it's so wide reaching and and you know it's it's just there's just so much to it. But any action steps and uh, then give out your website. In 2018, I started an organization, nonprofit organization called Citizens for Free Speech, and that's citizensforfreespeech.org to promote and defend the First Amendment in particular. And we've kind of been touching on that during this entire interview one way or another. Free speech is on the chopping block, as you know. The First Amendment is on the chopping block. And our ability to communicate, whether it's through expression of religion, whether it's through free speech or freedom of the press or the right to peaceable assembly or the right to redress the government for grievances, all of those things uh, concern communication. And if we lose the ability to communicate in our country, we're done. Europe, you already alluded to, has no such thing as free speech anymore. You say certain things, you'll end up in jail. Mm -hmm. We're headed that way. And, you know, we have mounted a defense for the First Amendment and free speech uh, through Citizens for Free Speech. Our membership is growing like mad right now with all the COVID crisis going on. And, you know, we're, we're rapidly becoming a national voice for the free speech issues. And I, I would encourage people, if you want to get involved with something, to do something, Go to citizensforfreespeech.org. Doesn't cost a thing to sign up, and stand with us and say, "Yep, I'm I'm done with all this other stuff. We need to start standing up ourselves and making our own voices heard in our local communities, especially." Yeah, definitely. Okay, so is that the website you want to share? Do you want to share well, another one? So Citizens for Free Speech. Uh, most people that might be listening would, if they know my name or the word technocracy, they will find my professional website, technocracy.news, very quickly. 
been around for a while and, and, you know, we have quite a bit of traffic coming to our site every day. So people can go there too, technocracy.news and follow along with the story, uh, the saga of technocracy in the world today. And I bring articles from all over the world actually to the bear that has something to do with technocracy. And, um, it's not what I say that I want people to see is I want people to, I want people here to see what the other side is saying. You know, people like the the Klaus Schwab's of the world and, uh, you know, the AOC's of the world, whatever you got to see, listen to what they are saying. Right. And if you do, you'll get an idea real quickly of what they have in mind to do. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Well, Patrick Wood, thank you for joining us. My pleasure. I hope we can do it again sometime. Thank you so much for listening. Please be sure to subscribe so that you don't miss any episodes. Be sure to check out the show's specific website and our general website, hartmanmedia.com, for appropriate disclaimers and terms of service. Remember that guest opinions are their own. And if you require specific legal or tax advice or advice in any other specialized area, please consult an appropriate professional. And we also very much appreciate you reviewing the show. Please go to iTunes or Stitcher Radio or whatever platform you're using and write a review for the show. We would very much appreciate that. And be sure to make it official and subscribe so you do not miss any episodes. We look forward to seeing you on the next episode.